way up. Is that, yep, all right. Hi, um, thank you all for coming. You could have done a million other things tonight, but you're here, so I appreciate that. Um, I always love when I come to Canada and the fact that you acknowledge um, Native Nations territory is so amazing to me. That doesn't really happen in the States. Um, so I'm always very impressed by that. But I want to thank Gallery 44 and the staff. I've had a good time here in Toronto. I'm a little under the weather, but I had a nice uh, workshop with Native students yesterday, so that was great. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking about my work here with you tonight. Um, so I'm going to start my lecture off um, with the most current work that I'm doing, and then I'll dive into the work, the collaborative work that I've been doing with my daughter. Um, this show actually just came down. It was in Las Cruces, New Mexico. It's called The Maniacs. We're not the best, but we're better than the rest. And um, it was a way for me to honor my father's uh, musical career and also my uncle Wendell, who I'm named after, who was the bass player in this band, um, who unfortunately passed away at age 22. When I was offered this exhibition um, and I saw the real estate of the gallery, I thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity for me to create this sort of rock and roll hall of fame for the Maniacs. So the Maniacs uh, was my father's all Crow Indian rock band in the like late 60s to... Um, uh, mid-70s, and um, when I was growing up, sometimes I would see my dad play the guitar, and I w would notice that he would go to this place um, that I could tell that he really loved and enjoyed, and he would always play different sort of blues songs and things like that, but just little kind of riffs here and there. Um, and it was when I was about 15 years old that I discovered in one of my aunt's um, photo albums these promo images of my dad and my uncle and one of their cousins uh, where my dad totally looked like Jimi Hendrix. And it blew my mind. I thought, wait a minute, he's like the rancher pilot guy. He's not, not this like rock and roll guy. Um, and so... I've always had them in the back of my mind. And the thing about the Maniacs is that they, there's no recordings of them. Um, there's just sort of these legendary stories. There's uh, set lists that are written down on envelopes. Um, they won the Battle of the Bands in Wyoming, which is very close to uh, our reservation in Montana. Um, and with that, they dealt with a very sort of racist crowd. But they... Uh, overcame that, and my father said that was like the best day of his life. And I thought, what about when I was born? But <laughs> I guess it doesn't count. So, um, so that set me on this path of really kind of working directly with my family, having lots of phone conversations with my father, um, and my aunts and uncles would give me images, either photographs. And so I started a timeline and it starts at uh, around age five with my father. He was trained as a classical guitarist. He played a Stella guitar. Um, and he played with a trio of 
um, two Crow men and they went around the reservation playing these sort of classical standards. And then um, my dad dropped out of high school and joined the Marines and went to Camp Pendleton in California. And so these photographs are actually slides that my mother was gonna throw away. Um, she didn't even look at them and she was moving. So I said, wait a minute, those look super cool. The case looked like it was from the 60s. And so I carried these slides around for about 10 years trying to figure out what I would do with them. And it was really wonderful to uh, see uh, his life at Camp Pendleton in the early beginnings of his Marine cre uh, career and going to Vietnam. And when he was in the Marines, he started a maniacs there with the Marines. And the Marine Corps let them um, play for two weeks in California, and they played for a Jerry Lewis telethon, and they ended up um, uh, getting like close to $50,000 in donations, which is pretty incredible. So it continues on, um, and my dad finished the Marines in the sort of mid-60s, shipped a lot of his instruments back to the reservation, and then started the band with my uncles. Um, and the timeline ends with uh, a photograph of my Uncle Wendell, who passed away, and that's how the band ended, because uh, no one wanted to play anymore, and my father buried his guitar in my uncle's casket, and that was sort of the end of it. And these are those cool promo shots. And they were a cover band, so they played close to 300 songs. And there's my dad looking very much like Jimi Hendrix. Um, and then some of the set lists, so I just blew those up and we put them directly on the wall. And then there's a little diorama scene. And this is the Marines uh, maniacs. And then as part of that, any good rock and roll show, you have to have a merch shop, right? So I created a little merch shop so people could buy hats. You name it, socks. I think I even have socks. Um, so when I left, uh, like a, a week or so later, the gallery director like texted me and she said, you've got to call us because something amazing happened. And I called her and she said, you won't believe it, but there is this Marine who came in and he said that he went to camp, um, to boot camp with your father. And he has retired in Las Cruces and he brought a yearbook with an image of your father. So this is that Marine. And so here's my father and then here's that Marine. Um, so it was pretty amazing. And what I didn't expect um, or really think about is that Las Cruces is a big military town. Um, so another Marine came to the opening and he said, I see that your father was an expert sharpshooter. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, he's wearing one of those medals, you know, that tells you. Um, so it was pretty wonderful. And I hope that this show will continue to travel. That's my plan for it. Um, and uh, we'll, create, we'll continue to create this sort of legendary story for them. Um, I was offered uh, an opportunity to curate an exhibition at the Missoula Art Museum in Montana. 
and it included Elisa Harkins, Tanya Lukin-Linklater, Marianne Nicholson, and Tannis Silton. And I asked them to share um, from their perspective their stories of um, indigeneity, land, um, and oral history. I'm going to skip past the video of that. Um, so just last year, I did an exhibition at the Q Foundation, which is uh, located in Chelsea, New York. And I decided to focus on this event that happens every third week in August called Crow Fair. It's our biggest cultural event. Um, and it started in 1904. And um, it was created by the government to assimilate Crow people and turn them into farmers. So they modeled it after Midwestern fairs. And they asked that the crows bring in their livestock and their produce. Um, but around that time, there are uh, a lot of restrictions as far as any sort of cultural event or ceremonial things that Native people could do in the States. So in order to entice the crows to come to this fair, they lifted up some of um, those bands. And so what the crows did was they had a parade every morning and we would dress in our finest regalia on our horses and we would parade around the camp and, and the camp was set up with teepees and stuff. And so that continued um, on and then slowly other things started to kind of form with that. And then around World War II, the government forgot about Crow Fair. It wasn't a priority for them and now it's become... Um, a, a sort of a revitalization of our culture. And uh, my grandfather was born in 1907, so he attended Crow Fair his whole life. My grandma was born in 1920, and so she has, and so on. So it's something that I do and that my daughter does, and it's known as the TP capital of the world. Um, and this August will mark the 100th Crow Fair. And so what I did with this exhibition was I gathered all the, like, family photos that I could of Crow Fair, um, starting from when I was a small child. Um, and then I dug into historical archives of um, documents of Crow Fair. And then I did um, the decades of Crow Fair through these images. So I'll show you a video here. And hopefully this is, doesn't make you sick. Um, and it starts out in 2016. So you'll notice that most of these photos are all iPhone photos, a lot of selfies. And what I would do is I would uh, write directly on the wall different individuals or different things that were going on that would help clue in the audience um, about different objects, um, why people were wearing certain things. And so that's my daughter right there. So in Crow culture, we have this thing about bragging. Is my daughter again. Um, so we're in the 2000s now. And um, within our community, we have this whole policing system where we have these teasing cousins. We're in the 90s here, if you can't tell. Um, and so... The whole, the whole point of teasing cousins is that if somebody catches you bragging about yourself, you're 
they'll alert your teasing cousin and then they'll come and they'll publicly humiliate you in front of everyone. And so the loophole to that is that you can brag about anybody else. And so a lot of what you're seeing with these women, we're in the 80s now, um, is when they're parading on horses, they have like war shields, stuff like that. So they're bragging about the men in their family. So you can have somebody else brag for you. Um, but it's just a way to keep, keep everyone honest. We're in the 70s here. And so these were the slides my mom was trying to throw away. And then um, Crow Fair didn't happen a few decades, so we're in the 40s here. And this is my grandmother right there. We're jumping into the 30s. My grandma's showing up again. And then in the 20s, and the little girl with the polka-dotted looking dress, that's my grandmother. And then we're into the 1910s. And so there are a lot of our chiefs represented. So the man holding the flag was our last primary chief of our tribe. His name was Plenty Coup. And this guy with a bird on his head is Medicine Crow. He's one of my favorite chiefs. I've done a project on him I'll talk about. And there's a little girl here. She's not the smallest one, but um, she was the lady that was in the wheelchair kind of in the beginning. So it's kind of amazing to see her pop up in the 1910s. So this is in the 1900s. And this is about 1904, the first Crow Fair. And then I end with this woman because she's a badass, but also because we're a matrilineal society, so everything's passed through the mother's side. And since my mother is white, I go by my grandmother's side. Um, yeah, and here's just some details of the timeline. And I start with my daughter because she's the next generation to carry things through. So this is a little bit about Crow Fair. Um, so this is my camp. Um, sort of those polka dotted dresses that you're seeing were actually um, elk teeth. And they're the eye teeth of an elk. So there's only two um, teeth per elk. And... Um, they're a big status symbol, so the more elk teeth you have, the more status you have. The, it shows off the hunting abilities of the men in your family or the trading abilities. If you're a really well-respected member of the tribe, then you'll have a lot of elk teeth. Um, here's just a little video of me making an elk tooth dress. Um, and then around the 1900s in Montana, elk were nearly extinct. So you'll notice if you go to... Uh, a museum and you happen to see an elk tooth dress and the label, it 
will typically say wool, beads, um, wood or bone, and that means that the teeth were then carved out of wood or bone. Um, and now most of the teeth are made out of um, resin or plastic, and a few of them have uh, some real teeth. And so typical elk tooth dress has about 500 per side, so you're looking at a lot of elk there. And so this is uh, all the accessories that you would use to uh, wear an elk tooth dress. Crow women wear scarves. Um, in my family, we like to wear chokers. They have hair ties, a belt, leggings, moccasins. You typically always carry a fan and a shawl. There's a big thing about modesty, so you're always covering your legs. And my grandmother was really known for making beautiful shawls, so we still have quite a few of hers. And then this is what it looks like on. And so this is also in my family's camp. We're getting ready to um, parade. And the cars are dressed exactly like the horses, so I love thinking about that. And they're also like showing off different... like war honors of, of the men, and we did get 13 little girls in the back of this truck, which is amazing. And we took second place. Um, so this is my daughter Beatrice, and this is just last year. And then just to give you an idea of the context. So I like to play this clip just to um, sort of have an anchor point of um, a, an anchor point for people to kind of have something to think about in the context of my work. There's this documentary called Half of Anything, um, and John Trudell is in it. How many do you know John Trudell? Anybody in here? He's in... Uh, Native American activist. He's no longer with us, but what I love about John Trudell is he's such um, a brilliant mind and a great speaker, and he was asked what a real Indian is, and I just really loved his response, and it's something that I knew, but it wasn't until he said it that it really kind of put things into perspective for me, so I'll go ahead and play that. What is a real Indian? Real Indians live in India. That's what a real Indian is. Real Indian won't eat a cow. <laughs> won't eat any beef. Real Indian. Yeah. All right. Um, and in the actual factuality of reality, there aren't any Indians here. And we're not even really Native Americans because we're older than America as a people. Right? We're older than America, and America is a concept that's been here two or three hundred years. Well, we're older than the concept. So I just really love to think about that and just to have you think about that as well. Um, and also, another thing I like to think about is um, Buffalo Bill's Wild West. Have you heard of that? Yes? Okay, good. <laughs> and do you guys know who Sitting Bull is? 
heard of Sitting Bull? Yeah, okay. Once I, I asked a, a group of college students in Colorado if they knew who Sitting Bull was, and nobody knew who he was, and it really freaked me out. So I'm glad you know who he is. Um, but I was thinking about Sitting Bull. Um, he was able to defeat the U.S. government. And to me, he's sort of like this iconic Plains Indian warrior chief um, of who I think a lot of Native people would look to as being the most authentic Indian. Um, but he traveled with Buffalo Bill's Wild West, and he played a version of himself. He played Indian. So even Sitting Bull had to play Sitting Bull at one point in his life. So that's another thing that I like to think about as well. Um, my home is where my teepee sits. So I grew up on the Crow Indian Reservation, which is located in Montana. And these mountains here are mountains that I grew up seeing. They're known as the Castle Rock Mountains. And here's a, a map of Montana. And what you're looking at is um, different Native nations' territory before contact and then after contact. So this map right here, uh, this yellow area is Crow territory. And then this is uh, where the current reservation is now. So um, I left my reservation at 18, and I uh, moved four hours away, and I attended Montana State University in Bozeman. And I started to take Native American studies courses there, and that's when I started to learn about the actual history of um, sort of the U.S., um, impacts on my own uh, nation. And so with that, I, when I was researching that, I uh, found this chief of ours, his name sits in the middle of the land. And he's one of my favorite chiefs. He's like six foot four. Um, he's got a 48 inch chest. I think that's big. Um, but he's a badass. And the reason why is because he w is responsible for telling the US where our territory is. And he used this beautiful metaphor. He said, my home is where my teepee sits. And the way that we construct a teepee is we use these four foundation poles. And um, then we set the rest of the poles up on, on that base. And so what he did was he um, put a pole on each of our major migration, migration routes throughout the season. And that mapped out 38.5 million acres. So that's what you're looking at here. And then he said, my home is where my teepee sits. And I was just so struck by that. And then when I took a closer look, I realized that Bozeman, where I was going to school, was actually Crow territory. And I got very excited about that. So I asked my father if he'd help me harvest lodgepoles. And then I would take them to campus and I would set them up. And I just wanted to let everyone know that they were on Crow territory. Um, so I started um, in front of the art building. And so here's those four foundation poles. And then the rest of the poles and then a finished crow teepee. And for crows, it's really important that uh, when you set up your finished teepee, that it almost looks like an inverted teepee on top of a teepee. So we really like long poles sticking out. And so I went and I scouted different territory on campus, the most um, desired pathways to get to your classes, and I set up my teepees. And then I would you know, just observe and some people would walk through, and some people would go around. And then I continued to do that. Um, and then it got sort of interesting here. This was 
by a co-ed dorm. And it would take me all day to set these up. I would finagle a few people to um, help me. Um, and these are like 35-foot poles, so they're pretty long. And um, I set this one up. It was a full day. Went home, came back the next day. They, they were knocked down. And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's the wind. So then I set them up again, came back, knocked down. And so then I decided, I'm just going to make this fortress teepee with all the poles that I have. So I set up this fortress teepee, same thing, it got knocked down. And then I was like, well, screw it, I'll just put it on the football field. <laughs> and so the reason I like to talk about that piece that I did in undergrad is that it pretty much marks the foundation of uh, my practice and the way that I work, which is through this sort of research um, always questioning things and then um, sort of digging into that and then a project is produced. In 2014, I was asked um, to, ha to do a solo exhibition at the Portland Art Museum. And I decided I wanted to focus on one of our chiefs named Medicine Crow, the guy with the bird on his head. He, again, is another favorite chief of mine. Um, and what was happening... Basically, since I left my reservation, I kept running into these two images here of Medicine Crow, um, either on the cover of books or when I was going to school at UCLA, um, Honest Tea uh, would, had a picture of Medicine Crow on it, so I'd buy some Honest Tea, have Medicine Crow hang out with me in the studio. Um, I would see a lot of artists... Um, using his image, um, making portraits out of it. If you Google him, you'll find all these different portraits of those two images. And so I decided I kind of wanted to get down to the bottom of this. Um, things I was wondering, do, does the public know who he is? Do they know his name? Do they know um, that he's Crow? And um, do they know uh, what he uh, was doing that day when he sat down to take that photo? And, that was actually something that I didn't know. And what I discovered was that um, he and five other chiefs went to Washington, D.C. in 1880. And this is a delegation portrait um, by C.M. Bell. And this is pretty typical. There are a lot of different Native nations that would travel to Washington, D.C. to sit down with the president. And then they would get their photograph taken. Usually there would be a group delegation portrait and then individual portraits. And um, the government was basically taking these photos for ethnographic reasons. Um, there was a big study on trying to figure out race with anthropologists. And so there's these delegation portraits. And the reason why they went to Washington, D.C. was the government was trying to put a railroad through a large chunk of our hunting territory. So typically, um, a delegation travels with uh, two interpreters, so these are the interpreters, and then either an Indian agent, um, or in this case, it was a clerk named Barstow. His last name was Barstow. And Barstow, when they traveled back to the reservation, they were in Washington, D.C. for like two months, and that was a tactic the government used to get people homesick so that they would sign things. Um, but when they came back, he asked Medicine Crow to draw from memory the trip. So there's these amazing images that are located in Billings, Montana, of Medicine Crow, who was in his early 30s. So here's the capital. These are different boats that they saw. I love this little fisherman guy. 
um, th the different trains. And this was the first time that a lot of the uh, Crow men had actually been on a train. They had heard it being called the Iron Horse. So there's an account where they were all trying to figure out where the Iron Horse was, and then it dawned on them that the train was the Iron Horse. Um, and then the other thing I was doing was I was looking into their clothing. So growing up, attending Crow Fair, I've seen some of these outfits, but I've never ever uh, questioned why. You know, it's just my normal. And what I learned is that they were stating um, how they became a chief. So in Crow society, there are four things you need to do in order to become a chief. Uh, one is to be the first in battle to touch an enemy warrior. The next is snatching a weapon from enemy in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, stealing a horse within an enemy camp and leading a successful war party. And I always like to brag about crows and horses because we had close to 90,000 horses. We were the best at stealing horses. When Lewis and Clark came through our territory, we stole their horses. Um, so it was a big deal for, for us. Um, and so the other thing about stealing a horse within an enemy camp is all the best horses are kept in the center of the camp and then with a rope around their neck and then that rope goes under the owner's teepee and it's tied to them at night. So you'd have to be really stealthy to get in there and then get it. And you'll notice in the parading um, that you'll see with horseback riders, there'll be a rope around some of the horse's neck and that indicates that that's a good horse that, from this uh, sort of chief duty. So here are some of the chiefs. This is Old Crow. And so this ermine that he's wearing on his arms meant that he captured a gun. If they have it on their leggings, it meant he stole a horse. Um, this is Pretty Eagle. And through my research, I found that he's actually my clan father. And when he passed away, um, he was buried in the back of a, a wagon box, which was a highly regarded burial for a chief at the time. And then his body was stolen along with several other Crow um, members and sold. And his body was sold to the Natural History Museum in New York. And so it's been 72 years there and we were able to get his, him back in the 90s. And there's a place on our reservation called Pretty Eagle Point. Um, this is Two Belly. And he's a, a river crow, so he's a different section of the crow. But I was able to find a jacket in the Portland Art Museum's collection similar to the style of jacket he wore. And so that gives you an idea of sort of the vibrancy that we're missing from these black and white photos. This is Chief Plenikou. He's the last uh, chief of our tribe. And the way that he's wearing his feather meant that he was the very first in battle to touch an enemy. Um, and this is Medicine Crow. Um, other things that, are, uh, that I found that were interesting is that the men wore these really long hair extensions. So you see this as a hair extension and people in mourning will cut their hair. And so um, they would take that hair and they would use pine pitch and stick the hair together to make this long hair extension. So you can see it sort of right here attached to the back of his head. Another sort of interesting thing that happened is they took them to the circus. It was one of the first circuses to happen in the States. And so Medicine Crow drew a lot of the animals. And because 
a lot of these animals don't exist in crow country. He came up with names. Um, so, for instance, the peacock is Wondertail, comes from above. I really love this uh, sort of visual language that we have. And I fell in love with these uh, images of circus animals. Um, and I was trying to figure out how I could own them. And there was an ad going around uh, Facebook at the time where you could submit your children's drawing to a company and they would give you a soft toy, uh, make a soft toy out of it. So I cropped his drawings and I sent them to this company that happened to be in Australia. So this is a camel, it's an elk with a large back on him, because that makes sense, right? And this is what I got in return. And this is a big snake with legs. And we have a mountain lion, so he just called this a mountain lion. And it was interesting to see like what the company would keep or what they would edit out. And so this is my favorite, the monkey man dog. And this is where you could see Medicine Crow definitely kind of forgot. He knew that the zebra had something on it, but he forgot that it was stripes, so he gave it dots. So during this time, I was also working a full-time job, um, and I'm also a single parent, so I have my daughter 50% of the time, and I was using every bit of spare time I could to try to finish the show, and I had... I needed one more piece to kind of make the show come full circle. And so it was in the evening and she wanted to play and I, I couldn't play with her at that point. I had to get stuff done, but I had a stack of Xerox copies of all these cheats. So I just handed it to her and said, okay, go entertain yourself. And she came back and she plopped this image down. And I thought, well, this is it. This is, this is the piece that I need to finish the show. And I asked her if she wanted to participate in the exhibition. So I set her up with a little studio and gave her better prints. And then she made about 20 of these um, drawings. And we went to the opening. And on the way over there, she asked if she could speak about her work. And I was like, well, shit, I guess I'm going to have to let you do that. Right? I can't, like, not let you talk about your work. Um, and I did. And... Uh, she was really good at speaking about her work, and she has this gift for public speaking. So um, we invited her class to come um, to the exhibition. So here she is. She wanted to wear her elk toothpress. So she's seven at this point. And uh, for this, I wasn't allowed to speak about any of the work, so she did the whole show. Um, I want to jump just to a project that I finished in 2017 for the RISD Art Museum. Um, and um, I did the first delegation that went to Washington, D.C. in 1873. And I plan to do all the delegations um, that have sat down with the president. So that goes into the 20s. So you'll notice um, in that group shot and in these individual shots of the chiefs, they all have these feather dusters, and I've highlighted their feather dusters in red. And when I was doing research, this is the only delegation that brought their wives with them. 
But when I was doing research, I was trying to figure out, like, what's up with this feather duster? Because I've seen it in the 1910s, too, of men having these feather dusters. And I never could figure out the reason why we had these peacock feather dusters. And so when I was reading the research on this particular trip, they said that there was uh, an extra. Um, and they actually got busted in, uh, when they were uh, figuring out the money and... And so what ended up happening was the Indian agent and the hotel keeper that they were staying at in Washington, D.C., took them to a brothel. And they saw a burlesque show, and they uh, were so enamored with this fan dancer that they gifted their eagle fans to her, and she gave them these feather dusters. So what you're seeing is them from this wild night out with their feather dusters. And then when they came back to... Crow country, all the sub-chiefs were like, well, we want feather dusters too. It's a status symbol. So the um, local traders started stocking these feather dusters. So you continue to see them up until the 1910s or even 20s. And it all stems from this wild night in 1873. Um, so Beatrice and I have uh, continued to collaborate. I want to play a few videos of our collaboration. We've worked at the Portland Art Museum and the Tacoma Art Museum. Wendy doing hers. It looked fun. I thought it like a coloring sheet. Beatrice, then seven, added colored designs to another set of pictures. They became part of an exhibition of Wendy's work at Portland Art Museum. I would describe it purple. Yellow, green, and orange, and blue, and, and I would describe it as a work of art. I really try to open it up so that they can say, well, you know, that person's like a, a human. It's not just like a figure of the past. It's, this is a real human, that, and here's how it connects to us today. And then we can definitely you, do that. Yeah, you could do it. Which what are you going to wear? The blankets. Wendy is preparing to lead a tour of the Haub family collection at the Tacoma Art Museum as part of the museum's Native Arts Festival. <laughs> okay, and then okay. He, he's also got an axe. So you want to grab oh, yeah. the axe? I think this axe looks more like the one he has. Okay. On the museum tour, Beatrice will dress up in fake Indian artifacts and recreate selected paintings. Wendy will provide deadpan commentary. Sort of like him? Let's see. Do you think they sort of look alike? Except yeah. I'm like way colorfuler than he is. Yeah. Oh, so my one... favorite. Claw. Why is this one your favorite? That guy looks pretty funny. And I get to use my favorite prop. Okay, so B, remember when we're in the museum, you're not going to say a peep, right? You'll be in the silent muse. Muse? What's a muse? A few weeks later, in Tacoma, the crowd is larger than Wendy had expected. It's showtime. One of the rules that the Haub family wanted when they wanted to purchase artwork is that none of the images in this exhibition would show any violence. 
So to make sure that we really shield ourselves from violence today, we are going to wear our rose-colored glasses. So Beatrice, should we put ours on? This is one of our favorite pieces in the collection by artist E. Burbank. He actually painted over 1,200 Indian portraits and contacted 125 different tribes. This is our most prized possession that we have here. It had been sitting in a factory in China. It's rare because it has these multicolored eagle feathers. Just take a moment here, because this is really a beautiful piece. Um, we've also done a project at the Seattle Art Museum. Uh, we were invited during a public e evening um, to do an intervention in response to an exhibition they had there called Indigenous Beauty. It's the Diker collection. And so this is some of the objects that the Diker family has. And they're these amazing and beautiful native objects, but uh, there's really no sort of... Um, context or anything like that. And so what I decided to do was I would mentor Beatrice through a body of work I did in 2006 called The Four Seasons and show her all the steps that it took me to make that piece and then have her uh, produce it there. And then we would invite the public to come in um, and, and uh, interact with the piece. So we created a Pacific Northwest season. I don't know what that is, but that's what we decided to do. And it's based off of the four seasons um, work that I did in 2006, which involved a lot of uh, online shopping at hunting stores. Uh, this is my dog. Um, and then when we got there, we set up our AstroTurf and our 70s photo mural backdrop. And then B took her photo and then we left the setup there, um, and what would happen is we'd have people come in and be sort of directed them on things that they could do within the diorama or if she wanted to pose them. And then that got uh, beamed up to the second floor at the entrance of the exhibition so people could see themselves on display before they saw the native objects on display. And so these are some of our recruits. Um, we returned in 2016 to the Portland Art Museum and participated in an exhibition called Contemporary Native Photographers and the Edward Curtis Legacy. And Edward Curtis actually came to my reservation in 1908. And so it was a great opportunity for me to have access to all the materials and um, all the writing. And he also did recordings of um, the men singing in my community. Um, but what I noticed when I looked at all of the large portraits that there were no images of any Crow women. So we wanted to do an updated um, portrait called Absaliga Feminist. Um, and so this was shot in uh, my studio, which is actually my living room on our Ikea couch. And so it's a series of four. And then we had to make sure it was the largest. And so B also uh, brought her class in to, to give a talk about that as well. Uh, we did our first artist residency together at the Denver Art Museum, and it spanned over um, five months and between two years. And with this, Beatrice uh, was really interested in giving a tour specifically for children. And so we set her up with her own little pass, 
and then we let her roam the museum and select uh, different artworks that she wanted to talk about. And we'd have either the curator or a docent come and educate her on that. And then she gave um, two 30-minute tours to children. Um, she said that she wanted ages like from 3 to 12. And I said, well, why is the cutoff 12? And she said, well, when you turn 13, you get a little bit strange. Um, but she really got into this uh, idea of being a tour guide, so she wanted her own outfit. So she drew what that would look like, and then I sewed it up for her. And so here she is giving her tours. I don't know where her style came from, but... <laughs> and I'll just play a little video of that. Another aspect of my practice is working with my daughter Beatrice, and it's really wonderful that she can come here to the museum, and she's also a working artist doing her thing, and we're, we're collaborating together. And we're really interested in the uh, Crow women's objects, um, mainly because I, I, as a mother, want to pass things down to Beatrice, and I want to learn as much about how the women made a lot of the material um, objects. I discovered that uh, the museum hired WPA workers to come in in the like uh, 40s and all the way up into the 70s to come in and draw each of the objects on the catalog cards. And there are these exquisite drawings, watercolor drawings that depict each of the objects. And so that's something that I was really drawn to because it's another artist who's had intimate time with each of those objects. So I'm really interested in maybe trying to find out who those artists were, more about that program, that important part of our history, um, and just kind of drawing a connection between them and, and my culture as well. Yeah. I'm going to tour children as a child through the Western and Native galleries. So they were able to experience a child teaching them and also to be able to learn about Native culture, Western history, then maybe do some activities that may inspire them. Well, I think that Sometimes it's easier to understand another child than to understand an older adult. And I just thought that maybe some children would be more comfortable knowing that this is a tour made by a child for children and maybe gain a new perspective on art. I'm excited about Beast Tour because it's um, giving children the platform to um, feel like their opinions matter um, and their um, experiences um, when looking at art are just as important as an adult's opinion. Um, and um, just the beginning of, I mean, the end of last year, we were invited to Washington State University in Pullman um, together, so that's the first time that that's happened. Usually the way it's it has worked is if I get an opportunity, I'll ask her, do you want to do something with me here? And she'll either say yes or no. Um, so this opportunity um, 
came up where they wanted B to give a tour of the contemporary women printmakers exhibition that they had. Um, and so I just want to show you a little bit about um, sort of the process. So, and B's 10 now. Um, she's totally tweening out. She wears cat ears every day. Um, and typically what we do is uh, she'll select artwork in the exhibition and then we'll research that artwork and she'll study that and then she'll um, Do you want to go through that small archway or do you, because you have 30, I don't know if we should funnel through that. And so for this one, she gave tours to um, four groups of third graders. And it required a, a totally new tour guide outfit, this time with cat ears. I had to psych her up a little bit. And what I've noticed um, through watching Beatrice give her tours to children is that I've never seen kids so engaged um, in this type of context um, viewing artwork. So it really is pretty incredible to see them so cued in and um, invested in uh, what she has to say. Um, so Beatrice also... we're. We're slated to do uh, two, two more projects together, one in Newark, New Jersey at the Newark Museum um, and one at the Palm Springs Museum. But Beatrice has told me that she doesn't want to just be known as the tour guide girl, which is pretty wild. The 10-year-old's worried about being pigeonholed. But, um, so we'll probably be producing different work. But um, Beatrice actually has her own podcast called Bee's Big Laughs. It's a comedy podcast and it's uh, focused on mostly female um, female uh, comedians, but I'll play you a little promo of that. Hello, this is Bee from Bee's Big Laughs and I just wanted to give you a little preview of our up and coming episodes. I'll be interviewing Darcy Carlin. I think it tastes a little bit like mammal gelato. Kristen Shaw. The doorbell rang when I was getting ready to come see you. He said, there's a town car here for the 10-year-old's podcast? <laughs> so it was just the Amazon. Abby Jacobson. I did not know where you were going with that. I was like, lots and lots and lots and lots of what? And I'll also be interviewing our one male exception so far, Weird Al Yankovic. I, when people ask me what my favorite parody is, I usually say white and nerdy. Oh, just, I love that oh, one. Oh, thank you. And Charlene Yee. I had a dream that you were interviewing me, but I got lost. And it was like a maze, and it was blue, and the ceilings were made of sheets, and I was like, where are you? These new episodes will also have my new theme song in it that I made with Carrie Brownstein. So make sure to listen in. Bye! These big laughs. So if you haven't figured out, she's my retirement plan. I uh, plan to retire in a couple years. 
Hello, this is... And I'm going to end there. So thank you very much. Um, I'm happy to take a few questions, if there are any. Or if you're too shy, you can come up to me afterwards. <laughs> Is there any questions? Hi, thank you so much. That was a really great talk. What was the reaction of the crowd um, with the performance when you brought in like the um, you know Chinese like made stereotypical elements? Like, what, how did people react to that? It was so interesting. Um, so the Tacoma Art Museum has this collection um, that's the Helb family collection and they're a German family who is obsessed with Western art and obsessed with uh, the West. So they took up residence um, in Tacoma and I think they also have a place in Wyoming and then they started to buy Western art. Um, so they gifted their collection to the Tacoma Art Museum and um, they also funded like a new uh, construction to the museum. And what the Tacoma Art Museum is doing is they're inviting native artists because they realize that that collection is problematic because most of it is white male artists depicting the West and depicting Native Americans. There's no Native American perspective. So um, they've had Native artists infiltrate those galleries in different ways by writing labels or um, doing other things. And I chose to do this uh, performance with B, this performative tour, um, and have her act out the paintings. Um, but do it in a way where I would sort of do, talk about these artifacts um, in a way that any docent would, as if it was like uh, real facts, alternative facts. Um, and so one of the interesting things, though, when I was doing research on the Halb family is that they, um, when they would buy artwork for their collection, it had to depict no images of violence, which I thought was super bizarre because the whole thing is about manifest destiny. You know, it's the most violent thing ever. And so I think setting up the tour with wearing rose-colored sunglasses, I, and I think um, sort of set the stage. But what I noticed is that the audience just didn't know what to do with me. Because when you walk into an institution, you're, so, you're sort of um, set up to think that the institution has done all their research and that they're, you're going to be learning and to believe them. And I could tell, like, is she, is she for real? Is she really... So I think they left really confused, which is what I was sort of hoping they would. And some people were like, this is not real, you know. Um, so it was sort of a very kind of mixed um, reaction to it. Yeah. Is there any other questions? All right. Okay. One more? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I guess uh, sort of maybe 
coming off of that a little bit, how has your daughter responded to, you know, working with you, particularly with these um, collections that come from, you know, obviously such problematic history and what has been sort of her response and feeling about um, performing in those environments? Like, you know, what does she think the effect on her is and what do, does she think her sort of effect on um, you know, the reinterpretation of those, those collections or those spaces is? Yeah, I think both her father and I are thinking, wow, it's going to be really interesting once she gets older to see how all of this has um, impacted her. Maybe it will require lots of therapy. I don't know. Um, But I think what I've noticed is that she's um, so much further along in her identity journey than like I was in my 20s so that's been pretty incredible and I think for her it's a way for me to sort of talk about those tensions and have her directly um, process that through interacting with those materials and um, having those conversations and the fact that she has to answer questions it's been really interesting as well to see how she answers those. So I think, um, like all kids, they just seem to like take it very naturally. So she's just very sort of nonchalant about the whole thing. But I, I think when she's older and she figures out what's going on, then, then I'll be able to get a better perspective or her perspective on it. But right now she's... Um, pretty incredible. She's very transparent. It's actually really scary. We, we sometimes will lecture together. I never know what will come out of her mouth. Um, sometimes she'll say a, a little bit of too revealing things, like um, that it was her going to be her dad's night. or so, so, you know, so I'm like, we don't have to tell the audience that, but I guess that's part of your world. you know. Um, so yeah, just stuff like that. But I think it's been really good for me to kind of let go of the control a bit. So I'm learning from her as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you.